It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Who knew that something worth a great fortune could bring such misfortune? Well, in the case of the globe-trotting Hope Diamond, that's exactly what happened. Over the course of 350 years, kings, bankers, and even thieves had their hands on the blue gem, and each was met with misery. Was it a curse or just bad luck? If you enjoy these episodes on the Hope Diamond and want to hear more tales of history's greatest mysteries, subscribe to Unexplained Mysteries. New episodes premiere every Thursday. Evelyn Walsh McLean was not a superstitious person. In 1911, the 25-year-old socialite was living an extravagant life that many would envy. She was the heiress to a gold-mining fortune, Newly married to the soon-to-be owner of the Washington Post, mother to a healthy infant boy, and resided in a luxurious mansion in Washington, D.C. Yet, on a cloudless, pleasant day in 1911, Evelyn found herself on a particularly odd errand. She was on her way to an exorcism. It wasn't an exorcism for her or any person, for that matter. It was for what she carried with her. A massive, magnificent blue diamond. The large, pear-shaped stone was elegantly cut in an antique, multifaceted shape. It shone a deep, rich blue that was captivating to an almost supernatural degree. This was the same diamond that was said to have toppled kings, ruined lives, and cursed a man to be torn apart by wild dogs. It ruined the lives of not only all who owned it, but also many who came in contact with it. It was the infamous Hope Diamond, and it was cursed. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries on the ParCast Network. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of Parcast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on the Hope Diamond, formerly known as the French Blue Diamond and Tavernier's Blue Diamond. The diamond is a whopping 45 carats in size and is among the most famous diamonds in existence. But for all its splendor, The Hope Diamond has long been rumored to carry with it a terrible curse. 
One needs only to look at the long list of people who are believed to have owned the diamond and the tragic, sometimes gruesome fates they ultimately met to see a grisly trend. In this episode, we're going to explore the history of the diamond from its discovery over 300 years ago to its disappearance amidst the chaos of the French Revolution, all the way up to the exorcism that Evelyn McLean commissioned in 1911. Next week, we'll dive into the recent history of the diamond and examine possible explanations behind its rumored curse. Today, the Hope Diamond resides in the Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. It's on display and open to the public. Anyone can take a stroll through the National Gem and Mineral Collection and gaze upon the stunning blue jewel. The Hope Diamond has undergone quite a journey to end up in the Museum of Natural History. Over the past 350 years, the diamond has traveled across continents, exchanging hands between thieves, bankers, and kings. Nearly all of these owners met some foul fate. The story of the diamond begins on the other side of the world from Washington, D.C., in India. In the mid to late 1600s, Europe was becoming less insular as global trade routes opened the nations of the world up to one another. A demand developed among European high society for exotic imported items, particularly diamonds. At that time, the only known diamond mines in the world were in India. Jean-Baptiste Tavernier, a French gem merchant, took advantage of this growing market. Between 1631 and 1668, Tavernier made six voyages to India to trade European silver, gold, and other luxury goods for diamonds. Over the course of his travels, Tavernier transported tens of thousands of diamonds back to Europe. He was massively successful as a trading merchant, respected by European and Indian royalty alike. During one of his six voyages to India, most likely his last, which lasted from 1664 to 1668, Tavernier came into the possession of a heart-shaped, rough-cut blue diamond that was just over 112 carats in size. To put that into perspective, the average size of an engagement ring diamond is about one carat. The approximate dimensions of Tavernier's diamond were about one and a quarter inch in length, just over one inch in width, and a half of an inch in thickness. That's roughly the size of a sliced deviled egg. Tavernier sketched the blue diamond in his memoirs, titled The Six Voyages of Jean-Baptiste Tavernier. He named the jewel... Tavernier's Blue. Tavernier didn't specify specifically where he found the diamond. In fact, he's notably vague about how and when he even found the diamond in the first place. In the 1600s, there were a number of ways European merchants could acquire diamonds. Many of the Indian cities had diamond markets where sellers and buyers could haggle. Larger diamonds could be purchased from higher-ranking officials. Or, a merchant could go to an active diamond mine and trade with the owner directly. All diamonds over 10 carats were supposed to be sent to the Indian government, but it was common practice for mine owners to hold back large diamonds for themselves. This practice created a black market for undeclared diamonds and even encouraged thievery. In his memoirs, Tavernier included a chart with a detailed drawing of the Tavernier Blue, along with drawings of several other diamonds he acquired in his travels. This chart references a page of notes that, as far as historians are concerned, 
doesn't exist anymore. These notes could have contained the account of how Tavernier got the incredible blue diamond. Of course, Tavernier could have deliberately made an effort to suppress the story of how he got the diamond. In his memoir, Tavernier conveys a tale with supernatural implications set at a temple in India. He writes of a thief who stole a diamond from one of the idols in the temple, only to find himself trapped inside. When he finally managed to get the door open, the thief was struck dead before he could set foot outside the temple. This, Tavernier wrote, was a punishment for defiling the temple. Some theorists believe this passage wasn't just an anecdotal tale, but Tavernier's disguised confession that he stole the blue diamond and unleashed the curse in the process. Ancient Indians believed diamonds were more than just valuable gems. They had real, otherworldly power. One of the oldest Indian Sanskrit texts, the Rig Veda, speaks of a god named Indra. The text says, quote, Indra is thunder. What is thunder? The diamond lightning, end quote. This ancient god was often depicted holding a bolt of lightning with a large diamond to power it. Diamonds were viewed as gifts from the gods. In some cases, ancient Indians believed they were the bones of gods. As Tavernier noted, many idols representing gods in Indian temples were encrusted with large diamonds. Diamonds gave gods the power to protect people from evil and cultivate goodness in men. If Tavernier stole the diamond from an idol, the diamond would be cursed. All who came into contact with it would fall victim to the curse. Regardless of how Tavernier came across the blue diamond, he journeyed back to France after his sixth voyage in 1668. At that point, Tavernier was a famed purveyor of diamonds and had a long registry of customers in Europe. And no customer was more loyal or more obsessed with foreign diamonds than Louis XIV, King of France. Louis played a large role in creating the diamond market in Europe during his reign from 1643 to 1715. He couldn't get enough of the gems, and he had the money to buy as many as he wanted. His lavish spending encouraged others to follow suit. Naturally, Louis and Tavernier worked well together. In December of 1668, Louis XIV purchased 47 large to medium-sized diamonds and over a 1,000 small diamonds from Tavernier. This massive order included the Tavernier Blue. Louis paid nearly 900,000 French lira, which equates to about $8 million today. Louis also agreed to grant Tavernier a patent of nobility and bestowed upon him the title of Baron. But despite their relationship, which by all accounts was warm, politics of the time would soon drive a wedge between the two men. And thus, the curse of the Hope Diamond would bring about its first recorded bout of misfortune. Louis XIV adored the Tavernier Blue, but he was unhappy with the rough-cut shape of it. So in 1673, the king ordered the gem recut to the more popular French style. The cut trimmed off nearly 42 carats of mass. The remaining 69-carat jewel, still heart-shaped, was accented with many facets and shined brighter than ever. As noted earlier, ancient Indians believed diamonds had supernatural power. To the Indians, a diamond's value was noted by size, not shape, 
which was why Indians rarely, if ever, cut their own diamonds. The bigger the diamond, the more powerful it was. Indians believed cutting a diamond would reduce its strength and may even anger the gods. To cut a diamond was to risk a curse. This is notable because some theorists believe that the curse didn't actually begin when Tavernier took the diamond out of India. It was King Louis who unleashed the curse by cutting the sacred stone. Curse or no, things started to go badly for Tavernier and King Louis as the 17th century ended and the 18th century began. In 1685, King Louis XIV revoked the Edict of Nantes, a French law protecting non-Catholics that had been in place since 1598. Louis' aim had been to unite his subjects under a single denomination, but in reality, he merely re-exposed Protestants and other non-Catholics to religious persecution. French Protestants were given a choice, convert to Catholicism or leave France. Tavernier was Protestant, and he wasn't crazy about being forced to renounce his religious beliefs. But he knew that he would lose his newly bestowed noble title if he didn't comply. He decided he would leave France and make a seventh voyage to India. That voyage never happened, and Tavernier vanished from the historical record for a time. He resurfaced in 1689 in Moscow, where he was trying to gather the resources to fund another trip to India. As far as the historical record is concerned, Jean-Baptiste Tavernier was last seen alive at a government building in Moscow. After that, he seemed to disappear from the face of the earth. No one he knew ever heard from him again. It would be centuries before anyone found out what really happened. The curse, it seemed, had claimed its first victim. In August of 1715, Louis XIV returned from a hunting trip. He complained to his doctors of a pain in his leg. Within days, it was clear that the king had contracted senile gangrene. He died on September 1st. With Tavernier's fate a mystery, King Louis XIV was the first recorded owner of the French Blue Diamond to die a most painful death. He would not be the last. We'll cover the French Blue's part in the French Revolution and its sudden disappearance after this. Now, back to the story. Tavernier's Blue Diamond, also known as the French Blue, came to France in 1668 at the height of the empire's power. When it finally vanished from France, the kingdom would be in ruins. The diamond's owner at that time, King Louis XIV, died of senile gangrene in 1715. If the French blue diamond really is cursed, then King Louis XIV was its first known victim. King Louis XIV was succeeded by his great-grandson Louis XV in 1715. Louis XV inherited the throne and the French blue. France was not in a great place during this time. Louis XIV's lavish spending and belief in the absolute power in the monarchy had begun to sow the seeds of discontent among the common folk of France. Relations between the public and the nobility only worsened over the course of Louis XV's reign, which was defined by disaster after disaster. Louis XV spent much of his reign overseeing costly wars, such as the War of Polish Succession, the War of Austrian Succession, and the Seven Years' War. 
taxes steadily increased to cover the cost of these wars and the lavish lifestyles of the French royal class. The king was even stabbed in an assassination attempt in 1757, which nearly killed him. He finally died in 1774 after having suddenly contracted smallpox. By then, France was on the road to revolution. For the entirety of his reign, Louis XV had worn a magnificent pendant that sported the royal order of the Golden Fleece. The centerpiece of that pendant was the French blue diamond. The French crown, the French blue, and the alleged curse all passed to Louis XV's son, Louis XVI, and his wife turned queen, Marie Antoinette. Though Louis XVI as the king was the owner of the French blue, the diamond came to be associated with someone else during the early years of his reign. Marie-Thérèse Louise de Savoie-Carignan, commonly known as Princess de Lamballe, was a court noble and a close friend to Marie Antoinette. With Marie's blessing, Princess de Lamballe wore the French blue diamond to a number of royal events in the 1770s and 1780s. She became more associated with the gem than the king and queen themselves. That association cost her everything. Louis XVI, Marie Antoinette, and the rest of the French court fled Paris in 1791 to escape the chaos that was befalling the city. They left behind most of the royal jewelry, including the French blue, in the process. The king and queen were captured along with Princess de Lamballe in 1792. Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette were eventually executed by guillotine. Their deaths were swift, but Princess de Lamballe was given over to the mob. The angry commoners recognized her as the woman who had worn the diamond. In the end, her penchant for wearing the French blue singled out Princess de Lamballe as the very kind of posh, extravagant noble that the revolution was seeking to do away with. The mob showed her no mercy. There are conflicting reports on the exact manner of Princess de Lamballe's death. Most agree that she was beheaded, though there are accounts that say she was torn apart at the hands of the mob. France had been a global power when Louis XIV first obtained the French blue. Now, just over a hundred years later, the empire was in ruins, and a thousand years of monarchy had met its end at the blade of a guillotine. And as for the French blue diamond, well, it was around this time that it vanished in the hands of thieves. The French blue and the majority of the royal jewels had been stored in the royal warehouse after the king and queen had fled Paris in 1791. The chaos of the revolution was such that, at some point in 1792, a band of thieves managed to walk right into the warehouse and take whatever they wanted. The first robbery was so successful that the men returned the next night and the night after. For five nights, these unnamed robbers entered the royal warehouse, unopposed, and made out like the bandits they were. On the fifth night, the thieves even held a party inside the building they were robbing. No one came for them. The thieves got away with one of the biggest and probably easiest heists of the 18th century. Among the goods stolen was the French blue diamond. There is no official record of the French Blue's whereabouts for two decades after it was stolen in 1792. There's a very likely cause for this silence. 
In 1804, after becoming the first emperor of France, Napoleon Bonaparte established a 20-year statute of limitations for any crimes committed during the French Revolution. Napoleon's statutes meant that if someone committed a crime during the Revolution, such as stealing a large blue diamond from the royal treasury, they would be immune from prosecution after 20 years had passed. In 1812, just days before Napoleon's statute ran out, a jeweler in London named John Francion reported the presence of a marvelous blue diamond on the British jewel market. Investigators were dispatched from France to examine the gem, and they found that the diamond in question was only 45.52 carats, as opposed to the 69-carat French blue. It was suspected, though not confirmed at the time, that the French blue had been recut at some point following its theft in order to better hide it from Napoleon's government, who would have taken it instantly if they could confirm it was the same diamond. Wilhelm Falls, a Dutchman who was renowned in the European markets for his diamond-cutting ability, was rumored to be the man who reshaped the French blue. You may recall that the ancient Indians believed diamonds were sacred and that cutting them unnecessarily could bring about a curse. In the case of Wilhelm Falls, one account states that after he cut the French blue, his son stole the diamond from him. The loss of the gem ruined Falls financially, and he died in poverty. Falls' son, it would seem, took the gem to London, where he sold it and then committed suicide soon after. He didn't leave a note to explain why. Documents from 1812 indicate that Daniel Eliasson, a diamond merchant, became the owner of this French blue shortly after the gem was reported in London. Very little is known about Eliasson, except for this. Soon after he sold off the French blue, he killed himself. As was the case with Fall's son, there was no known reason for the suicide. Both deaths could be a tragic coincidence. Or a curse. It's never been confirmed whom Eliasson sold the rumored French blue to, but there is some speculation that buyer was none other than George IV, King of England. Now, There is no record in the British Treasury to indicate the monarchy ever possessed the French blue. But an 1822 portrait of King George IV depicts him wearing a pendant with the insignia of the Royal Order of the Golden Fleece, which was set with a large blue diamond. Recall that Louis XV had the French blue set in a similar pendant when he assumed the throne. So George could have had the diamond... It's entirely possible George IV knew he couldn't wear it in public without creating a political incident with the French government. England and France were not on great terms during this point in history. It wouldn't be outlandish to suggest that George wore the diamond in the picture as a way to taunt the French. Or he could have commissioned the painter to depict the diamond so that people thought he had it. But if he really did possess the French blue, why are there no records of it? The Order of the Golden Fleece wasn't uncommon among European royalty, and it's also possible the blue stone in question was a large sapphire, maybe even the Stuart Sapphire, a large blue gem in the British monarchy's possession at that time. However, George IV died a painful death just a few years later, in 1830. He died of a ruptured stomach and internal bleeding. Not a great way to go. It's preferable to senile gangrene, at least. 
George had no heir, and his extravagant spending left his estate in such great debt that most of his belongings were sold to private buyers. So maybe his creditors erased the diamond from the record so that the estate wouldn't know its true value. Or maybe someone had begun to suspect that this diamond was not something to be coveted. The diamond vanished yet again. It next appeared in 1839, listed in the registry of Henry Philip Hope, a London banker. This was the first time that the stone was named as the Hope Diamond. The same year that Henry P. Hope unveiled the big blue diamond which he had christened with his own name, he died. The Hope Diamond passed to Henry's nephew, Henry Thomas Hope. In 1851, the Hope family put the Hope Diamond on display during the great exhibition of the works of industry of all nations. This event was in London and acted as a kind of precursor to the World's Fair. The Hope Diamond was a huge hit with attendees and drew large crowds during the course of the exhibition. It was during this exhibition that a French diamond expert put forth the notion that the Hope Diamond was, in fact, the recut remains of the lost French blue. This connection had been rumored before. Private circles within the diamond merchant community had suspected the connection between the French blue and the 45-carat gem ever since it first appeared on record in 1812. But that connection hadn't been made publicly known until the gem was examined in 1851 at the Great Exhibition. From that point on, the Hope Diamond and the French Blue were generally considered to be one and the same. In 1887, 21-year-old Lord Francis Hope inherited the Hope family fortune, and with it, the Hope Diamond. It was around the same time that a startling discovery was made, one that might indicate an answer to the earliest mystery surrounding the Hope Diamond. A grave was discovered in a cemetery near Moscow. The tombstone clearly bore the name Tavernier. The numbering was faded, and the death date wasn't clear. Tavernier had been found, but the question of what happened to him remained unanswered. Word of Tavernier's grave wouldn't make it to the Hope family for another few years. Regardless, Francis Hope seemed like he didn't really need the help of a cursed diamond to ruin his own life. He was generally known to be a thoughtless, indulgent spender with lavish tastes and a gambling problem to boot. Francis inherited his family's sizable estate in 1887. It would not be long before he had squandered it all. In 1893, Francis met and eventually married an American actress named Mary Yohi. The two lived large, using Francis' inheritance to fund an opulent, decadent lifestyle. Mary even started wearing the Hope Diamond whenever the two went out. Their standard of living was unsustainable. By 1902, Francis had spent most of his family's fortune, valued in today's currency at around $75 million. He and Mary subsequently divorced. Francis started selling his family's valuables in order to stay afloat and to manage his gambling habit. In 1902, he sold the Hope Diamond to gem merchants in New York for $148,000. That's $4.3 million in today's money. However, Francis and May's misfortunes continued, even after Francis sold the diamond. 
He lost his leg in a hunting accident sometime after 1902. May Yohi's acting career declined. Her marriages after Francis failed. She even tried to open a bed and breakfast, which she called the Blue Diamond Inn. It burned down. That one almost seems like tempting fate. It was May Yohi who actually became one of the earliest modern proponents of the theory that the Hope Diamond was cursed. In a written account about her personal life, narrative of Lady Frances Hope, May Yohi related a moment in the first days of her marriage with Lord Francis, when she read the history of the Hope Diamond and the ill fate of those who came in contact with it. Of course, that would mean she chose to wear the diamond out and about, even though she knew about its history. But that doesn't mean the stories of the diamond's curse are to be disregarded outright. May expressed regret that she hadn't destroyed the diamond while it was in her possession. So she made it her mission to warn the diamond's next owners about what they were in store for. Up next, we'll follow Evelyn Walsh McLean, how she came to possess the Hope Diamond, and her mission to break the curse. Now back to the story. In 1902, Francis Hope, the financially ruined heir to the Hope family fortune, sold the Hope Diamond to Simon Frankel, a New York City gem merchant. Over the next few years, Frankel took the diamond on a number of transatlantic trips to show it off to potential buyers. The diamond eventually found itself back in the possession of royalty. In 1908, Turkish Sultan Abdul Hamid II of the Ottoman Empire reportedly purchased the Hope Diamond for $400,000, roughly $11 million today. Hamid II only got to enjoy his new jewel for a short time. The very next year, in 1909, the Sultan was deposed in a revolution and his government collapsed. It was the second time the Hope Diamond had presided over the fall of a regime. The Hope Diamond was auctioned off in 1910 to help settle the Sultan's debts. Given the diamond's chaotic history with royalty, it is somewhat ironic that it ended up in the hands of Pierre Cartier, the Prince of Jewelers. Cartier is a top brand name in jewelry, even today. The company was founded in 1847 by Louis-Francois Cartier. His three grandsons, Pierre chief among them, built the Cartier name. Cartier was a shrewd diamond merchant, and he had the perfect buyers in mind for the newly acquired Hope Diamond, Ned and Evelyn McLean. Ned McLean was from a prominent family and the heir to the Washington Post newspaper. Evelyn Walsh McLean was a notable socialite and what most would consider new money. She was the heiress to her father, Thomas Walsh's fortune, which primarily came from prospected gold. Evelyn and Ned had previously bought a large diamond from Pierre in 1910 to commemorate their honeymoon. When he acquired the Hope Diamond, Pierre knew that the couple would go crazy for the stunning blue gem. According to Evelyn's autobiography, titled Father Struck It Rich, in 1910, Evelyn and Ned were staying in Paris when Pierre came to visit. He walked into the McLean's hotel suite with a package and asked the couple if they had heard any news from the East about the fall of a certain sultan. Cartier had researched the diamond's sordid history and its long list of previous owners who had met with dismal fates. He relayed that history to the McLean's, knowing that they wouldn't be able to resist such a rare, dangerous treasure. 
Cartier even claimed to know the cause of Jean-Baptiste Tavernier's death all those years ago. According to Avalon, Cartier claimed that Tavernier had been ripped apart by a pack of wild dogs. It should be noted that Cartier had no source for that claim. Clearly, there was some embellishment to Cartier's tale. He was trying to make a sale, after all. And his tactics seemed to work on Evelyn. When Cartier finished his story, Evelyn wanted nothing more than to rip open the package and lay eyes on the diamond. She needed to see it. Cartier obliged and opened the package. Evelyn was entranced when she first gazed upon the stone with her own eyes. She wrote in her autobiography, quote, I have never seen another like the precise blue of the Hope Diamond. The blue of it is something I am puzzled to name, end quote. Evelyn was transfixed. She knew she wanted the diamond, but she asked that Cartier have the stone reset on a new pendant before selling. With that, Evelyn and Ned returned to Washington, D.C. and waited for Cartier to arrive and deliver the newly set Hope Diamond. Cartier arrived in America some weeks later, but when he showed up on the McLean's doorstep, he found that Evelyn was having second thoughts about buying the stone. The tales of curses, illnesses, misfortunes, and bankruptcies had gotten to her. Cartier, never one to lose a customer, made Evelyn an offer. She could keep the stone for a weekend and then decide if she still wanted to buy it. Evelyn kept the Hope Diamond for three days before Cartier returned. Looking back, she recalled those three days as a period of quiet disturbance. In her autobiography, she wrote, quote, For hours, the jewel stared at me. The setting had been changed completely to a frame of diamonds, and there was a splendid chain of diamonds to go about my neck. At some point during the night, I began to want the thing, end quote. Pierre Cartier returned on January 28, 1911, to find that Evelyn couldn't bear to part with the beautiful blue gem. Ned pulled out his checkbook and purchased the Hope Diamond right there. Cartier even included an unusual and unprompted clause in the contract for sale. The provision in the contract stated that if any ill should befall the McLean family in the first six months of ownership, that he would replace the jewel with diamonds of equal value. Evelyn McLean was part of the social elite, and the Hope Diamond had its own reputation, so the sale caused a small media sensation. On January 29, 1911, a day after Ned McLean purchased the diamond for Evelyn, the New York Times reported upon the sale of the Hope Diamond and corroborated many of Cartier's claims about the gem's history. The article went into detail about the diamond's past owners and the fates that had befallen them. This article also repeated Cartier's unsubstantiated claim about Tavernier being killed by wild dogs. The McLean family also stirred at the news of the purchase. Evelyn's mother-in-law actually fainted when she heard the news. She begged Evelyn and Ned to return the diamond to Cartier. Evelyn actually gave in to that request. At the end of 1911, she sent the Hope Diamond back to Cartier and asked for a different stone of equal value. But the six-month window for return, as stipulated in the sale contract, had passed. Cartier sent the diamond back. Then, Evelyn began receiving letters from May Yohi, warning Evelyn of the curse and urging her to do away with the diamond. 
Evelyn did not see herself as a superstitious person. In fact, she often said that where people had bad luck, she would only find good luck. Still, beset from all sides by people warning her about the diamond, Evelyn started to believe in the curse at some level. She said, quote, I did believe that the blue diamond was a talisman of evil, end quote. Not long after, Evelyn Walsh McLean found herself riding in a Wood Queen Victoria electric motor carriage on her way to an exorcism. Her destination was a newly built Catholic church on the outskirts of Washington, D.C., to meet with Father Russell, a longtime friend of the family. On the bright and cloudless day, Evelyn and her maid Maggie entered the church with the Hope Diamond. It was Evelyn's intention to have Father Russell perform an exorcism of the gem to drive out the evil spirits and devil inside of it. She wanted to make sure the curse was lifted. As Father Russell donned his robes and prepared for the exorcism, something strange happened. A storm took shape out of the cloudless day. Thunder seemed to shake the very ground. Lightning flashed repeatedly, striking the church and splintering a nearby tree. Stranger still, there was no wind and no rain. Father Russell pressed on, all the while praying in Latin over the pulsing blue diamond. As he finished, the conjured storm disappeared as quickly as it came. As the father finished the ritual, no one knew what they were supposed to feel. No one present had ever tried to lift a 300-year-old curse before. Evelyn McLean had hoped that a Catholic ceremony would dispel any curse that was trapped within the shimmering angles of the Hope Diamond. But she would soon learn the diamond had other plans for her. Next week, we'll investigate the outcome of the exorcism and Evelyn Walsh McLean's storied ownership of the diamond. We'll take an in-depth look at a more current timeline of the Hope Diamond, covering the history up to the present day, where the diamond sits on display at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. We'll examine a recent scientific discovery that could strongly link the Hope Diamond to a curse. We'll explore how each of the victims and rumored victims of the curse came to their demise, and if indeed it was the curse that caused it. We'll also find out definitively if the curse of the Hope Diamond still exists today. If you're looking for more Unexplained Mysteries, you can find us, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Many listeners ask how to help the show. Well, if you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by David Turk, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Christian Cernoskis and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.